This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues. Really appreciate you joining us once again. And as usual, a lot happened this past week. I don't know why that is, but it's always a busy news week. But this past week, we had the jury four person, the grand jury four person who went public in that Georgia case. You know, the case that we talk about it a lot on this program. This is the case in Fulton County, Georgia, basically Atlanta where the DA is looking into whether former President Trump and others committed a crime by trying to meddle, if you will, in the election in 2020. So this is a case that we've talked a lot about, and there were developments this week with this special grand jury Four person speaking out, going public. Her name is Emily Coors, and she said a lot of things in these interviews. Robert Costa was in Atlanta for us covering the story. Emily Coors, the forewoman on the special grand jury investigating former President Trump's alleged interference in the 2020 election results in Georgia, is speaking out. Her interviews come unusually before the district attorney has announced how to proceed. It also follows a judge's partial release of a report last week on the special grand jury's findings, which states that jurors believe one or more witnesses might have lied during testimony. If they've been following the investigation, I 
I can't see it being a shocker. Much of the probe centered around the alleged pressure campaign led by former President Trump and his longtime lawyer Rudy Giuliani on Georgia officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who Trump pressed in a January 2021 phone call. Look, Brad, I have to find 12,000 votes and I have them. The grand jury also looked into allegations that the former president was involved in a plan to roll out fake presidential electors in Georgia. While Coors stoked intense speculation, she would not explicitly say whether the special grand jury is recommending charges against Trump. Her comments about private grand jury deliberations are rare and come after a judge decided to keep several sections of its report secret. We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't there are no major plot twists waiting for you. And of course, the Georgia-based legal team representing former President Donald Trump accused the Fulton County DA of running, and this is their phrase, a clown-like investigation. So a lot has happened this past week. So we're going to start this episode of ACF talking about the developments in this case. Joining us now is Atlanta Journal Constitution reporter Tamar Hallerman, who has been following the work of the special grand jury. Tamar, thanks for joining us once again. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Always a great time. Tell us about Emily Coors. Who is she? Emily was the foreperson of the special purpose grand jury that met behind closed doors here in Fulton County, Georgia for the last eight months. Now, her identity, along with all 23 of the special purpose grand jurors, was a closely guarded secret. And I think many other reporters, myself included, we were all desperately hoping that some of these folks would come forward now that their work is done. But I don't think any of us expected the kind of media tour that Emily ended up giving this week. She was first identified in a news report from the Associated Press, and she ended up giving a string of interviews, uh, both to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, me and my reporting partner, Bill Rankin, but also many TV networks. And she was very forthcoming about her impressions of various witnesses and just overall her thoughts on this investigation and where she wants to see it go from here. What? What was the most important thing? You think that she said what would, of course, caught my attention was the statement she made about there, there will likely or I don't know if she said there will likely be indictments, but she is she says she just wants something to happen. Well, she did confirm on the record that the group recommended many indictments. And we kind of knew that based on some of the statements that the judge overseeing the grand jury had made. He was really kind of dancing around certain points. And it, it was pretty obvious between that and then the, the portions of this grand jury's final report that was released last week. It was clear that there were multiple indictments being recommended, but Emily ended up confirming it outright. Not only that, she ended up telling some TV networks after she spoke to me that over a dozen names were being recommended for indictments uh, by the, the district attorney's office. So, I mean, it, it goes to show the breadth of what this special grand jury looked at. And I mean, clearly, <laughs> they went big in this. They, they weren't targeting it to one or two people. It sounds like they believed that a large group of people was culpable 
in Georgia in the aftermath of the 2020 elections. But has she jeopardized the prosecution in this case because she has come out so publicly and and talked about the special grand jury and what might be coming next? Well, there's been lots of chatter these last couple of days, particularly among Republicans who are saying that this could lead to either witnesses or likely targets of the investigation or even Trump's team um, themselves issuing some sort of motion in court that would seek to nullify any indictments or move any potential proceedings out of Fulton County and would cite Emily's remarks Um as a, you know, to kind of show that the special grand jury was prejudiced. But as I've spoken with legal analysts over these last couple of days, no one thinks that what Emily said was enough to jeopardize this investigation. Um, they note that this special grand jury was investigative in nature. It, in it, in and of itself, unlike a regular grand jury, cannot issue indictments. It can only recommend indictments. Um, and because of that, and really because she was speaking to her own opinion and not discussing the deliberations, which is the one thing that's off topic for grand jurors, they think, yeah, it creates headaches for the DA's office, certainly, and for the grand jury and its reputation, but they don't think it'll be enough to kill the investigation. This past week, as you reported, the attorneys representing Donald Trump in this Georgia case, they came out and and pointed to Emily Kors' statements as an example of how this investigation is, in their words, clown-like. What more can you tell us about the Trump attorney's response? Well, it was notable, first of all, because this is the first time we've heard from his legal team publicly about this investigation since they were hired more than six months ago. So they'd kind of studiously kept quiet this entire time, but they said they felt really compelled to come forward now. To them, uh, Ms. Kors' comments um, were kind of a lens into the broader investigation that's been conducted by Fulton DA Fonnie Willis. They say it's a symptom of what they say is, is a really unserious investigation and one that is, is very deeply flawed. They accused the DA of seeking fame and Twitter followers and notoriety and not conducting a serious investigation, one that would be much more by the book, much more private. And so they feel like Ms. Kors' remarks have really tainted anything that could come out of the DA's office in the weeks and months ahead. And they mentioned when I asked them about all this chatter about people filing court motions in response to Emily's testimony or, or sorry, media remarks, um, they wouldn't confirm it anything one way or another, but they said that all options were on the table. This is an interesting case for many reasons, but uh, in one of the previous answers that you, you gave us, you talked about how this investigation with a special grand jury and the DA has been operating. And we know the DA, Bonnie Willis, has said that her decision is imminent. What does that mean? Because it, it you know, when she said it, uh, there were some people who thought, oh, imminent must be a couple of days, but it's been some time since she made that statement. So so when is her decision going to come? 
Well, Jeff, if I knew that answer, I would have had a much more relaxing couple of weeks. And as I plan out my spring, I think it would look a lot better. Um, We have no idea what imminent means. It's been a month since the DA made those comments at at a court hearing. And I actually caught up with the DA last week after a, a state Senate hearing. And I asked her what she meant by then, when we might see charging decisions from her. And all she would say with a smile on her face was, I meant legally imminent, not reporter imminent. Now, I don't really know what legally imminent means, but reporter imminent would have meant within a couple days, maybe next week. And clearly, we're not on that sort of time frame. And look, as I talk with legal analysts, um, they think we're talking within a couple weeks, maybe two or three months, uh, but not much beyond that. You have to remember that should she try and indict somebody like Donald Trump, He's running for the Republican nomination for president. And this time next year, he's going to be on primary ballots. She wants to get as much of of a potential court case out of the way as possible. So she's not seen as meddling or or letting this legal cloud loom. And the DA herself is also up for re-election next year. So those are some practical considerations for her to take into account. You, and part of the reason why I enjoy bringing you on the program, is that you had followed this from the very beginning. And and based on your knowledge of the case, what do you think is the most damning piece of evidence? Should the DA bring charges against Donald Trump? Well, obviously, what makes this Georgia case unique and why so many legal analysts think that this could be the the investigation that ultimately leads to legal consequences for Donald Trump starts with this recorded phone call, uh, January 2nd, 2021, between then-President Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. It's more than an hour long. You hear the president talking to the Secretary of State about how he needs nearly 12,000 votes, one more vote than what President jo- uh, than what Democrat Joe Biden had won the state by. And it's a pretty remarkable tape. He talks about, you know, fellas, fellas, please get me the votes. You might have legal consequences if you don't look into some of these fraud allegations. It's a it's a very remarkable tape and something pretty rare, you know, a leaked conversation involving the president of the United States that immediately made its ha- made its way into the hands of the media. So it starts there. Another aspect of this Georgia investigation that I think is particularly damaging for former President Trump is this district attorney is very familiar with the state's racketeering laws. That's how she really made a name for herself. She famously prosecuted nearly a dozen Atlanta public school teachers in a pretty remarkable cheating scandal here uh, maybe six, seven years ago. And so she talks frequently about how she's not afraid of using RICO when necessary. And she's brought it up in conjunction with this investigation. She said it's one of a half dozen laws that she was looking at very early on when it came to the activities of the former president and his allies. And in Georgia, RICO laws are much broader than what we've seen at the federal level. So legal analysts tell me that this is something that the the former president really needs to pay attention to because RICO, you know, it was designed to go after the mob bosses, the old mafia dons in New York. 
um, folks who never got their hands dirty directly, but who had a whole structure underneath them of criminals who would do the dirty work for them, but kind of carry it out in their name. So if she's comparing Donald Trump to a mafia don, you could see how she could potentially weave together all sorts of, of events that occurred between November 2020 and January 2021 to, to form this narrative of kind of a pattern of potential criminal behavior in Georgia and even around the country if she wanted to. I think people forget in this case, Rudy Giuliani, and I was there when he testified before this special grand jury, but he was told before he showed up to testify that he was a target of the investigation. Yes, and remarkably, in, in what would be a giant piece of, of historical irony, should she, should the DA charge people with RICO and should she charge uh, Rudy Giuliani with RICO? You know, he was one of the first U.S. attorneys to successfully use that when he was in Manhattan to put away the heads of the five crime families. So to go from a pioneer in the legal profession with a certain law to being on the other side of that law would certainly be a really remarkable development. Of course, we're not there yet. We don't know if anyone, including Rudy Giuliani, will be indicted for crimes here. Um, but certainly being a target is, is definitely, there's a lot of legal exposure for, for him here. And he's one of at least 18 people that we know who'd previously been informed that they're targets of the investigation and could see charges. She could go f ultimately at the end of the day for a broader group than just the 18. Those are the people we know, but there could very well be others. She could go for all of them. She could go for some of them. She might go for none of them. But in her remarks at a court hearing last month, the DA did seem to heavily suggest that she was looking at indicting people. Can you imagine if, and this is a big if, but can you imagine if this Fulton County DA Bonnie Willis brings charges against the former president, brings charges against his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, brings charges against Rudy Giuliani, brings charges against uh, Senator Graham from South Carolina. Can you imagine the political implications of bringing charges and the legal implications bringing charges against all those very influential politicians? I mean, I, I really can't. It's such an overwhelming idea and something with no legal precedent here. No former president has ever been charged with a crime in the history of the United States of America. That in and of itself would be ginormous news that would shake the, the legal and the political foundation of the country. But to then think about all the other big names around him, and we're not only talking about folks who've become famous for working in the Trump White House, but we're also talking about broader legal issues in terms of separation of powers. Um, as you mentioned, Mark Meadows was White House chief of staff. Um, we're talking about his attorneys, people like Rudy Giuliani and others who advised his campaign. Um, do you want to start kind of shaking the tree of attorney-client privilege or executive privilege? There's a lot of really thorny issues that would need to be dealt with should the DA want to go for certain people. 
Tamar Hallerman, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Turning now to Anita Allen, who is a law professor at Penn Carey School of Law at Penn University. Professor Allen, thanks for joining us here on ACF. Tell me, why is this Supreme Court case significant? Well, this case, uh, the Gonzalez case, is significant as the first time the U.S. Supreme Court will have examined closely the scope of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, This uh, law, which was passed in 1996, uh, provides, it's a very, actually it's a very brief law, (laughs) a short law. It says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And this simple passage has generated a huge amount of controversy among the uh, federal courts and their judges, and it's about time the Supreme Court kind of resolve the question of what is the scope of liability for an internet service provider, for a platform, for a big tech company? Yeah, these are are questions that are really being debated right now. You have a lot of cases working their way through the court system, dealing with holding social media companies accountable. Yes, and this particular case, uh, involves a young woman, a college student named uh, Nehemi uh, Gonzalez, who was visiting Paris. Uh, and while she was there, unfortunately, there was that huge 2015 terrorist attack on, on the city of Paris, which killed um, over, I think, about 130 people, and maybe 450 were at least were injured. So she was caught up in all that, and she was killed. And her family blamed Google for this, uh, her death, because. Uh, Google, which owns uh, YouTube, was the platform on which ISIS had published some radicalizing uh, videos, and uh, and Google uh, w- was accused of having uh, promoted through its algorithms uh, viewership of some of these uh, uh, radicalizing videos that then were in fact um, the cause of the uh, harm that their daughter uh, and their your loved one's face. So, so this is the, the context. It's a context which, you know, a young girl, uh, American girl was killed due to terrorism. I mean, ISIS took responsibility for the terrorist acts in Paris. And the family believes that the responsibility rests with, uh, with YouTube for allowing, um, not just allowing uh, ISIS to post videos on their platform, but actually having algorithms that kind of guided certain targeted users who might be vulnerable to and susceptible to radicalization to those videos with the result the family argues in their in their legal papers that de- that their daughter uh, Nehemi was killed. Why is it that social media companies have this liability or this um, have been shielded from liability? Why is that? Well, it's an interesting question to think about. Like why why have social media Companies been shielded from uh, liability for third parties. I think well, one reason is that in, a, in the United States we have a kind of deep-seated uh, principle in our culture that the people who ought to be punished and held liable for wrongdoing are the people who commit the wrongdoing. Punish the terrorist. Punish the pornographer. Don't punish the platform that simply is the host or intermediary for their for their their their, their videos or their statements. And that idea that it's the criminal that needs to be punished or the wrongdoer that should be punished and not the, 
the, the, the host or the, or the provider uh, is a very deep principle. And sometimes it's analogized to like the mail carrier. You don't blame the mail carrier if they deliver a piece of mail that is full of lies and misinformation. Their job is just to carry the mail. And some people think that, that, that uh, YouTube or, or um, Amazon or, or uh, Facebook is just like the mail carrier. They shouldn't be blamed for what's the content of the, of the material. But other people believe that, uh, no, it's more like this. It's like you're a big store and you have a parking lot. Now, you're a Target or a Walmart. You've got a parking lot. And you know that criminals are lurking in the parking lot to ro- rob and mug people, and you don't do anything about it. You don't, you, you, you're responsible for maintaining a safe parking lot because people are using your, your parking lot and you're benefiting from that. So you need to have security cameras or security guards or something to protect the public who are invited to your site. So the question is, you know, is, you know, is, is YouTube more like the mail carrier or more like the big box store that courts have already begun to hold, have some responsibility for foreseeable injuries that take place in their parking lots? And that is a good question, because the reality is, if you ask law enforcement when it comes to uh, foreign terrorist groups who've been, who have members who've been radicalized online, or mass shooters here in the U.S., we're seeing evidence that some of these mass shooters, uh, I dare say many of these mass shooters are radicalized by what they're seeing online. Yes, uh, that is unfortunately true. And, and, and in, the, in the Gonzalez case that's before the Supreme Court, uh, it, it will eventually have to be um, decided whether or not the, the actual cause of the young woman's death was the radicalization of, of, of specific criminals um, and terrorists by, by uh, videos that were posted on, on Google. But the idea here that, uh, that our, we have now a, 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 a culture in which people can turn to the Internet to, uh, to gain and form communities that may have nefarious purposes, that's a really serious problem. And whether, the, the, whether it's uh, you know, a white supremacist or terrorist or, or uh, other, other radicalized groups, we need to do something, I think, to uh, try to stem the tide against a, a, a sort of free reign on the Internet that allows the worst elements of society to, um, to connect and perpetuate their evil ideas. Let's talk about what happened this past week in these uh, two related Supreme Court hearings. What surprised you about those hearings and what the Supreme Court justices were saying? So I think one of the things which surprised a lot of people was how uh, the court was exhibiting um, and admitting to, to a certain amount of confusion and uncertainty about, about you know, what's at stake, uh, what, the, what the technology is, uh, what's the best course forward, uh, what the lower courts have, um, have, uh, have, have held, uh, whether the Second Circuit or the Ninth Circuit or particular judges on the Second Circuit or the Ninth Circuit have the right point of view. So there's a lot more, uh, I think, um, confusion and uncertainty than might be typical. The other thing which is striking is that this is not a case where there's like a clear conservative liberal split. This is a case where maybe you can see that people who are somewhat judges who are somewhat more libertarian might take a position different from judges who are somewhat more liberal or conservative. 
So it's not going to be your, you know, the kind of split we saw in the Dobbs case where you have, uh, you know, Trump appointees on one side and, and liberals appointed by liberals on the other side. It's not going to be that kind of a thing at all. It hasn't been that kind of thing at all. I think we're going to see in this case some surprising um, um, agreement among justices who are seen as being on different sides of the political spectrum because I think that uh, people, whether left or right, can worry uh, about uh, allowing 230 to be interpreted so broadly that you can never uh, find liability for, uh, for uh, um, uh, Internet companies when uh, their platform has, uh, through, their, through conduct of their own in terms of how they design their products and how they use algorithms, led to, to, to harm. So that, those, I guess, are the things I found surprising. You know, again, just briefly, one, the, the confusion, and two, the, the, the lack of a left-right split, but a more nuanced um, a set of considerations that don't easily um, uh, admit to uh, political characterization. How about the tech companies and how they responded to the questions from the justices? Tech companies in this case are are trying to do a couple of things. I mean, on the surface, I think they are um, defenders of free speech and free expression uh, but they're also concerned about their own bottom lines, about the potential for crushing liability uh, that, that might come from opening the doors to more lawsuits, concerns about the cost of potentially frivolous lawsuits where big tech companies are seen as you know, sort of deep pockets for, for, for easy, uh, easy um, settlement relief. Uh, they're concerned about you know, how you draw lines and concerns also about, about, um, about free enterprise and innovation being, being squelched. But, but I think that... Um, that, that we have to ask ourselves as, as those who are witnessing uh, the, the position that high tech is taking, the extent to which they're making legitimate uh, concerns, uh, raising legitimate concerns about, about free speech and innovation, and the extent to which they are allowing their bottom line to overly uh, influence this position that they're taking on these issues. You know, the question might arise is why the United States has such different um, approaches to free speech online and some other countries that are similar uh, democracies. And I think one of the reasons that is that, you know, we are the home of big tech. Silicon Valley is the home of big tech. And we've all benefited so much from the development of, of high-tech high uh, web, uh, uh, web uh, internet applications. We've all benefited, you know, with how we shop, how we communicate with our families, how we how we uh, access government services. There's so many ways in which we benefit from technology. Yet, uh, this explosion has, uh, in, in the use of technology has led to making it even easier for unwholesome and criminal elements to, to have their way. So maybe it's time, I mean, the question has to be asked, maybe it's time to, to, to think about 230 in a somewhat um, narrower way than some of the more libertarian organizations and some of the companies themselves might might prefer. Okay, so part of the argument has been that these tech companies promote certain kinds of uh, content uh, thanks to their algorithms. You know, so basically, what we as consumers of social media look at or read the most leads to these algorithms promoting certain types of content. How, how is that a factor in this case, in, in this, uh, the, this liability case? Well, uh, 
what the companies themselves are saying, I think what, what YouTube has said is that about 70% of their consumer video content that's accessed is driven by their algorithms. So, so you know, if you're somebody who logs on to look at hairstyles or fashion, you're going to get an awful lot of more <laughs> hairstyle and fashion videos sent your way. If you're somebody who's looking for um, uh, radicalized uh, terrorist <laughs> content, you're going to get a lot more of that because the algorithm is going to see you as somebody who's, who's drawn to that. So, so given that the algorithms are sort of sending people content uh, again and again that reflects past behavior or demographic information that, that, or other data that's been collected about you through your online behavior, that, that, that means that, that they're kind of shaping people's perspectives and maybe overly influencing the, the direction of their of their thought and behavior. That's that's the concern that there's a that there's more than it's more than just providing, you know, in kind of a neutral way content, but it's actually pushing certain content forward because people have shown a interest in it or because you think they sh- they should or will show an interest in it and your you know your advertising dollars depend upon you being able to say to your advertisers look look at how many people are accessing you know these these videos so so that that's kind of a concern and i uh, i, I want to underscore a a point about uh what some of the commentators from the law side are saying about about why this might be a case where the court should find that 230 could be um, narrowed. So in some of the past cases, the plaintiffs complaining about the Internet company's um, behavior were complaining about them being a platform on which other people posted offensive or harmful material. What some of the legal commentators are saying about Gonzalez is that the Gonzalez case is the first one to say it isn't so much just that you're providing a a platform for other people's content, you are doing something yourself that's wrong and dangerous. You are creating an algorithm or sets of algorithms that are increasing uh, the susceptibility of your uh, viewers to harmful behavior, and that's wrong. So it's, it's the conduct of the, of the Internet service provider, of the platform of social media, it's the conduct of, of their own, not the criminal conduct of a third party. And that's the difference that might make a difference here. If this argument that no uh, social media, uh, Internet platforms are themselves engaging in harmful conduct, if that argument wins, then I think that there's some chance that Gonzalez's case uh, might be successful for the petitioners. I am so thankful that I get to quiz you about this topic because even the Supreme Court justices have pointed out how they're not tech experts. Most people aren't. And that's why this case is so complicated, I think, for people to to grasp. Yeah, it, it, it's complicated because of the technology. You know, it's also complicated because of something I haven't mentioned yet, which is that 230 was highly shaped by the law of defamation. You know, before we had the internet, we had a law of defamation, which makes it um, a tort, it's a civil wrong, to, um, to lie about somebody, to tell lies about people. That's a tort. You can be sued for that. And, uh, and so the, the sort of the original question, I suppose, that you might say that, that 230 was all about is, you know, what happens when uh, a third party posts uh, defamatory information on your 
on your website or on your social media platform, on your you know, message board, as we used to say back in the 1990s. What, what happened to then? And um, the initial response, I think, was, whoa, well, you know, these, these, uh, these message boards and these are simply, um, are, are simply uh, like um, a library or like uh, a bookstore. They're not like a newspaper where there's, you know, there's, there's liabilities as a publisher for, uh, for uh, defamatory content. And so, so uh, one of the complications of this case is not only dealing with new technology and its implications for uh, our lives moving forward, but it's also, uh, I think, a moment for us to reflect about how in the past we viewed um, uh, speech and its limitations through defamation law. Uh, that, so that layer of it is very much present in the Gonzalez um, papers, you know, in the court papers and the amicus briefs and so forth, but it's not been that big of a, of a, of a t- discussion point in, in the larger uh, realm because I think the public is, uh, is, uh, is, is less, um, less concerned about the sort of history of defamation, which, though, does have a big bearing on this case. Definitely. All right. So where do you expect these cases in the Supreme Court to go next? So we have to see how this one comes out, whether it's going to be a narrowing of, uh, of the immunity under 230, uh, or whether things are going to be sort of left the same. I, I hope that the court at least clarifies the scope of the 230 um, immunity doctrine uh, for us. And then I think that, um, th- that in the future, there's going to be a lot more focused perhaps on specific kinds of, of harmful content. So, so this case, Gonzalez case is about terrorism content. I think a lot of people these days are concerned about sexually inappropriate content, not just the sexually inappropriate content which potentially harms our children, but sexually inappropriate content, content that harms adults who are victims, for example, of, um, of uh, what's sometimes called revenge porn, you know, these sort of postings of sexually explicit materials that are done by people in your own social world who, who are, are out, out to get you, out to harm you, sort of involunt- turning you involuntarily into pornography and posting it online. So, so, so what's going to happen to that realm is, is a, of a great interest to me. And maybe uh, while this case uh, uh, focuses, because this case focuses so much on the terrorism problem and that kind of posting, it may not leave as clear as it could concerns about, about um, online sexual improprieties and how we should view social media responsibility for that kind of content. In addition, I think some of the um, privacy and data protection organizations uh, in the United States, the activist organizations who are fighting for our privacy rights, are concerned about whether violations of some of our statutes that do protect our data and our, our fair access to, to services based on the use of data, whether those kinds of laws can be reasons to narrow the scope of 230, like our fair housing laws or our fair credit reporting laws. If online content providers are violating aspects of those laws, what is the responsibility of the uh, social media platforms to filter out or to censor that kind of content? So we have a lot of issues left to explore after this particular case. And, and uh, again, I mean, the Supreme Court could very narrowly rule in this case, or it could broadly rule in this case. It could broadly rule with a narrowing, and it can narrowly rule mm-hmm. with a broadening. So, you know, we, we have a lot to look forward to, and it's, it's exciting, and it's also a little scary, because a lot is at stake, you know. I mean, uh, minority groups who want to be able to protest uh, unpopular opinions online, whether it's Black Lives Matter or 
or uh, drain the swamp. You know, uh, it matters whether or not you're going to have to worry about being centered or filtered uh, by by content providers. And there's some chance, some chance that if the court finds that the immunity uh, of of social media is less than it has been thought in the past, it might lead to more more filtering and more uh, more more content censorship. Uh, and that could be, in some contexts, a bad thing. Although, again, I mean, I think when the content is completely undemocratic and um, completely reprehensible, we might want to allow uh, and encourage companies to do a little bit more by way of uh, content moderation. So, uh, again, we, we have a lot of lot to look forward to and a lot to, to work through as a society. Professor Anita Allen, thanks for your time. Thank you for inviting me on your show, and good luck. President Biden made a surprise trip to Ukraine this week. It was a symbolic show of support for Ukraine as it battles Russia. Simon Miles is an assistant professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke, and he's an expert in Russia and the former Soviet Union. He is the author of Engaging the Evil Empire, an account of how Washington, Moscow, ended the Cold War. Simon, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Jeff. All right. So what do you think? Did President Biden win on the world stage this past week? I think it's undeniable that the president's visit to Kiev this week was a major foreign policy, not just symbol, gesture. And, and make no mistake about it, Jeff, symbols matter in international politics but also a really clear statement of where American foreign policy is heading on the issue of Ukraine. I think it sends a pretty clear signal at home about where his priorities lie, echoed in fact by Mitch McConnell just a few days earlier at the Munich Security Conference. And it sent a very clear message, I think, to Vladimir Putin, who wanted to be the first one of the two to get to Kyiv, uh, envisioning, I think, a very different sort of trip. But as you noted, this this is symbolic on the president's part. How can it or will it translate into success on the battlefield? Well, like any good guest, Jeff, Joe Biden did not arrive in Ukraine empty-handed. Uh, He came with some half a billion dollars worth of aid. And look, I know that big, fancy, big ticket items like tanks, main battle tanks, even perhaps uh, fighter and strike aircraft are getting a lot of the attention in the media. But right now, this war is being won and lost based on much more primitive tools like straightforward artillery shells, which Joe Biden, not literally, but figuratively brought quite a few uh, with, on replacement tubes for expended uh, artillery barrels. Things like that are having a real impact on the battlefield. And I think we can't discount the morale effect of the visit as well. You know, the Ukrainians I'm talking to in Kiev and elsewhere take a lot of confidence as they approach their war of self-defense from the message that the president of the United States sent that he was with them and that the U.S. government was too. Look, I've been very critical of the Biden administration for not having ramped up arms deliveries to Ukraine 
earlier, just as I was critical of the Trump and Obama administrations for that exact same issue because of the exact same threat posed by Russia, especially since 2014. But the types of weapons that the president committed the United States to delivering will not only have an effect on the battlefield as soon as they get there, as the Ukrainians repel the ongoing Russian offensive and think about a counterattack, but should also be a very clear signal to America's allies that more is expected of them, too. Where where do you think the GOP stands on this trip overseas? You mentioned Mitch McConnell, um, but there are some members of the GOP who are critical of this president and his approach to Ukraine. Without a doubt, there are some GOP elected representatives who are critical of the president on the issue of Ukraine. I put it to you, Jeff, that were the president not active on Ukraine, they would be critical that he wasn't doing enough. I think they're just critical of the president. Uh, these are the loudest voices, but they're not exactly the most serious voices and certainly not the ones that we should be looking to for signal as opposed to noise. I think both uh, Mitch McConnell's comments in Munich Kevin McCarthy's Wall Street Journal op-ed about Ukraine singing a similar tune make it pretty clear that within the GOP today, which certainly is having a pretty heated debate about America's role in the world, the so-called internationalists are at least the ones in charge. Uh, in both the House and the Senate, I think leadership has a pretty clear understanding of why supporting Ukraine isn't only the morally right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do in terms of defending America's interests around the world. Putin is still defiant, even though Russian troops have had serious setbacks over the last year. What do you take from Putin's speeches this past week. You're undeniably right that the reason that this war is happening is because Vladimir Putin wants it. In fact, if rumors going around Moscow are to be believed, then this entire misadventure was concocted in his head along with a few people from the security services and without any meaningful military involvement until very late in the game. That would track with the pretty sorry performance of the Russian military on the battlefield over the preceding year. The speech that Vladimir Putin gave on Tuesday of this week in which he, well, let's be honest, he said a great many things. He talked about the origins of the war, including bizarre claims that this was forced upon Russia by Alternatively, the Ukrainians, NATO, the United States, the European Union, etc., etc. But he also just descended into the kinds of bizarre conspiracy theories about social wedge issues, which have just become really his hallmark of late. So yes, we saw Vladimir Putin pretty defiant, but at the same time, it was really instructive to me, Jeff, to look out in that room, at least on the footage that was released, and you saw an entire room full of Vladimir Putin's closest advisors, his cabinet and so on, just showing absolutely no appetite or enthusiasm for what the Russian president was saying. You take an individual like Elvira Nabulina, who's the governor of Russia's central bank, 
She has been given headache after headache after headache by Vladimir Putin's bizarre imperialist fantasies. And it's clear that she and others are really not behind this war. What I saw in that video was members of of the Kremlin standing and giving Putin a standing ovation. Well, you're not wrong that when the applause light lights up, everyone knows that they need to do what they need to do in order to stay in the good graces of the boss. But you had people falling asleep on camera. And it's no secret that many people in the leadership are not enthusiastic about this conflict, really outside Putin and a very small, small sector of the security services top brass. So I think what that says to us is not that some kind of coup is imminent. Uh, I don't want to give anyone the impression that that's what I'm uh, suggesting, but rather that the serious people in the government, the technocrats who actually have to deal with the consequences of this, are really unenthusiastic about the war. And I think that maps pretty neatly onto the majority of the Russian population, where there is a sort of social contract that if you stay out of politics, you'll be allowed to reap the rewards of economic growth. Now, that social contract is being broken in two ways right now, Jeff. First of all, people aren't getting a chance to stay out of politics as they get drafted with absolutely appalling conditions of training and equipment into fighting this man's war. And also the sanctions and the like, though they haven't been as devastating as was talked about about a year ago, have certainly called into question whether people are going to be able to reap those rewards. Why hasn't the opposition in Russia been able to take advantage of Putin's weakness right now? Well, the first thing we need to understand is just how brutally repressive the Russian system is and certainly can be. We saw in the early weeks of the war some very brave individuals making what by any normal standard would be extremely anodyne uh, anti-war messages like simply peace. Uh, facing not just brutal violence by the police and the paramilitary authorities, but also all kinds of other sanction. What we also see, though, is that a lot of people informed by those dire consequences are simply voting by, with their feet and getting out of the country. Look at, for example, the spikes in ticket prices for airfare, Uh, to get out of Russia to countries where you don't need a visa, like the United Arab Emirates, Serbia, Georgia, Armenia. That makes it pretty clear that a lot of those who can want to get out of the way of this conflict. Because I think there's a clear sense, and you don't have to look much further than Alexei Navalny, the at least symbolic head of the Russian opposition movement, that that there's not really space for dissent and frightening consequences. How do you see this? Because I wonder, still, a year later, if the average American understands what is at stake national security-wise for the U.S., uh, when you look at the situation in Ukraine and why uh, 
the Biden administration is sending billions of dollars to the Ukrainian government. Could you explain what's at stake? Well, the first thing I would say, Jeff, is we need to dig a little deeper on what terms like sending billions of dollars to Ukraine actually means. Because it's certainly true that Ukraine is being provided with cash in order to pay soldiers' salaries, keep basic government functions going. Ukraine is also being sent billions of dollars of American manufactured armaments that were produced by Americans making salaries in the United States and spending that in communities in the United States. So let's not lose sight of the fact that the Department of Defense is doing a lot of shopping in America and that value derives to American citizens just as much as it does to the end users, the Ukrainians on the battlefield, using it to defend their own country. But let's go back to the bigger point. What, why does this actually matter? Well, I think this matters for two major reasons. The first is that the United States has a real interest in upholding certain norms about the way the world works including that you don't go invading your neighbors in order to redraw borders which you wish had been drawn differently. That's important in Europe in order to keep a Europe, in the words of George H.W. Bush, whole, free, and at peace, and ultimately being not only the engine room of the European economy, but also an important market for American goods. But it also matters because there are a lot of other people watching what the United States does when it comes to Ukraine. And Xi Jinping and his cronies in Beijing are certainly at the top of my list of people whom I hope learn a very clear lesson about the United States' role in the world. The second big point that I want to make is that this is about Ukraine right now, but it's not just about Ukraine in the future. Anyone who thinks that Vladimir Putin is, total, is going to be totally content with a little bit more of the east of Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula, I think has misunderstood what the totality of the Russian president's ambitions are. They reach much further than just Ukraine and are in fact global. And if the United States wants to put a stop to that, it's always best to do that as far away from American borders and as far away from American allies' borders as possible. Look, right now you talk about sending money and equipment, but that is a heck of a lot cheaper, Jeff, than sending Americans. How does this conflict in Ukraine end? When does it end? Or is it still too early to tell? You know, as a historian, Jeff, I'm always wary of making predictions about the future. I'm okay at the past, barely passable at the present, but the future is getting way outside my wheelhouse. We know that wars tend to end messily. They don't end with clear, definitive, decisive resolutions in which all of the parties say, okay, that's how this wrapped up, like a soccer game or something. And so... It's going to end at the negotiating table, whatever that means. Russia and Ukraine are going to be the key, but not the only people around that table. But what happens around that table is going to be driven by what happens on the battlefield. And thus, while I wouldn't say that the only purpose of supplying the Ukrainians with arms 
is so that they can get a better or less worse negotiated solution. It is critical to remember that this is going to play out diplomatically, not just militarily. And so episodes like President Biden's very clear signal of his support for Ukraine have not only military, but also diplomatic consequences when it comes to thinking about what Vladimir Putin's Kremlin, which is in all likelihood going to be the counterparty here, understand about their room for success in negotiation. Simon Miles, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Jeff. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.